So tonight we're making the transition from, most of you remember that this part of the Eightfold Path that we're discussing this winter includes two components, right view and right intention. Sometimes it's translated as the Pali word of Sankapa. Sometimes Sankapa is translated as aspiration. Sometimes as resolve or right thought or um, right motivation, you could even say, right thinking. So the a useful way to understand this is whatever our view is, a wholesome view, wise view, or a not so wholesome, not so wise view, something will naturally flow out of the view. Life energy flows out of the view, but it's going to be colored by the view or affected by the view. So tonight I thought it'd be interesting to look at, you know, the different kinds of views we have. And sometimes we, it's easier to find the view by noticing how irritable I am. And then it's like with our, our imagination, we back up and we notice well, what sort of view is behind is sort of the force behind the irritation or behind the wanting or behind the just not wanting to be here or being in denial. Because there's whenever we feel that intentional force, motivational force, aspirational force in the mind leading onward to thoughts and words and actions, then it's coming out of some view or some belief, some stance. When there is right understanding, we aspire to truth, beauty, and goodness, Ajahn Sumedho says. So, we can look, you know, a lot of the time, we're not aspiring to truth, beauty, and goodness. We want to get even, or we want to be recognized. And so then it's so interesting, so useful to begin to see the array of views that we operate under. And not take them personally. Some of those views are quite wise. And then the intention or aspirations or resolves that flow, they're skillful, right? And they lead to virtue, skillful action, skillful words. And some of our views, you know, have a different shape, a different quality. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. He has a wonderful text that we'll use in the spring when we look at the Four Noble Truths. And that's the name of his, um, it's like 50 pages, 60 pages, his teachings on the Four Noble Truths. And this section, this is in the last part of that book that he wrote where he's talking about the Eightfold Path and this part of the Eightfold Path, wisdom. He says, so we aspire to know the truth. You might think that it is a kind of presumptuous desire or aspiration. Who do I think I am? Little old me trying to know the truth about everything. But there is that aspiration. Why do we have it if it's not possible? Consider the concept of ultimate reality. 
an absolute or ultimate truth, is a very refined concept. The idea of God, the deathless, of the immortal, is actually a very refined thought. We aspire to know the ultimate reality. The animal side of us does not aspire. It does not know anything about such aspirations. But there is in each of us an intuitive intelligence that wants to know. It is always with us, but we tend not to notice it. We do not understand it. We tend to discard it or mistrust it, especially modern materialists. They just think it's fantasy and not real. So this will be useful because, you know, in moving from a more mundane view to a more refined view, it sort of brings us into territory we might have been taught not to trust. And, you know, and even Buddhism often can seem like a materialist view of things. Like, just see, just paying attention to what's here. But part of what's here is this aspiration, like Ajahn Sumedho was saying, to be free. Right? That's a sort of, like he's saying, you know, he's using the word sort of animal or sort of a more basic nature of this body and mind. You know, we're interested in eating, we're interested in mating, we're interested in being safe, but the idea of some kind of ultimate freedom or full release of the heart, a heart free of anxiety about food, about safety, about, you know, social connection, That's a pretty refined thought in this very complicated, messy, often base world we live in, this idea of freedom. So we want to, in this practice of, you know, right understanding and the movement that flows, we want to open up to what is actually here, what we actually find in our heart especially as things begin to settle down in our life. So let's break this apart and feel free to uh, interrupt if you have questions as we go through this. So we've talked about mundane right view. So let's look at what sort of motivation, what sort of aspirations flow from that. So remember from the past weeks, mundane right view means that as we're in life and not completely overwhelmed by the details of life, and paying more attention, it dawns in the mind that it's it's lawful. Like I can begin to read how things unfold and how my participation affects how things unfold for me, for better or worse. And we begin to distill that understanding into what in Buddhism we call a mundane right view, which includes the realization it's lawful And the lawfulness begins to revolve around, you know, greediness, not being helpful, non-greed, setting things in motion that are generally feel better, aversion, hate, not helpful, non-aversion, kindness, setting in motion a life that's easier, that's more pleasant. So this is on a mundane level, like, me, as an ego, from this ego point of view, this self point of view, seeing what works better, like what actually is more pleasant, 
feels better for me. And around um, delusion, you know, not feeling it's relevant to pay attention, for example, like that doesn't work. And, and having this value like, well, it actually, things work better when I'm attentive, when I'm alert. So in Buddhism, for example, in terms of right view, mundane right view, leading to like that movement of aspiration, sometimes we talk about it, you've heard me talk about it or read about it, hiriotipa, this wholesome regret and this wholesome concern. It's like we understand that as a moral being, as somebody participating by, you know, how I'm, the kind of values, the sort of attitudes I'm bringing, the views that I'm bringing to the moment, that I want to be, I'm naturally concerned because I know if I bring this really narrow, self-centered view that I undermine my relationship with the people I love and I'm dependent on or I want to be able to count on. And when I bring this other attitude, these other resolves, other way of thinking about things, then things work better. So naturally, from this mundane right view, we have this wholesome concern. And when we make mistakes and we end up setting in motion something that is heavy in our life, we have this very natural and appropriate regret. Like, honey, don't do that again. That didn't work. So in terms of that motivation and resolve and aspiration and the kind of thoughts we have that <clears throat> lead onward to action in life, how we participate, there's very much on this mundane level, there's very much a place for wholesome concern or fear. Be careful. Like that image, that the, the simile the Buddha used of a cow herder constantly on top of the cows, keeping them on the trail so they don't walk through the crops and destroy the crops. Because cow herder would be in trouble if that if he allowed he or she allowed that to happen. So we have in and it's appropriate to sense a, a kind of tightness there. Because as a moral being I can make mistakes. So I have these values and I'm holding on to them, personally holding on to them as a kind of protection. These values I trust and I and I use them as a way of protecting me from the values I don't trust but just so happen to have momentum in my mind. So we need, that's like a little bit, I mean just to be dramatic about it, it's a war. right? We have the values that we're beginning to trust because as we read how things play out, we see that these seem to work better. And then we have the values that are just there. They're sort of our, the fruit or the result of culture and result of upbringing and even result of genetics. And there they are. And so we're using these cultivated values that we have seen work and we're holding on. Because right now, it's a training. So at this mundane level, these resolves, it's a training. I'm training my mind to, to sort of remember that these seem to work better. And training our mind not to believe the voice that says, go ahead and take it. Or you can do that later. You don't have to do that now. Or all the different ways that, you know, those other, that other view 
operates. Like one of the expressions of delusion is imagining that it doesn't matter that I'm paying attention. Like that if I don't get my taxes in tomorrow, I lose my 15 or 10% discount from the place that does my tax, our, our taxes. You know, so that means, and I could sort of, you know how it is, we can blow it off, even obviously more important things than that. You know, not calling our mother on her birthday or, you know, whatever it might be, not following through with something we said we'd follow through with. And that's an expression of delusion, like thinking it's not important, pretending, imagining it's not important, when it actually is important. There will actually be consequences to not doing. But the voice in the mind is saying, oh, it will be okay, you'll figure it out. You work it out later. They'll understand. So, we don't always want to hear this part of practice, you know, when we start to get that it's lawful and we begin to read it. We read the lawfulness, like when I do this, this happens. When I do something else, this other thing happens. We go from more of a wishful thinking to, okay, and it's like this inner parent gets activated. Okay, are you going to listen to what life is teaching? Or are you going to continue to, to ignore what you know? And, you know, this is one of the challenges when we have teachings about that talk about ultimate freedom or talk about how it's just empty phenomena rolling on, just stuff happening, nothing's personal. Because this is what we call spiritual bypass. We want to go right to the freedom, but we're ignoring this very important part of practice, which is there is this very strong force of taking it all personally, and this part of this force of taking it all personally, well, it wants to be safe, and it wants things to work out better and not worse. So part of the way compassion operates, non-harming operates in the mind is, okay, honey, if you want things to work out better for you, then this is what life is teaching us, you know. If you want the fire to last all night, you've got to put some wood in before you go to bed. Or if you want to have a pleasant beginning in the morning, you've got to put things away so when you wake up in the morning, you don't have to do all those dishes you didn't do last night. Or your clothes are ready because you got it organized. So it's just the basic science or art of life. Now you might, if you've read ahead in the Bhikkhu Bodhi article that was sent out, you know, the two chapters, one was on right understanding, right view, and the other is on right intention. I'm not sure what, how he translates it, maybe as intention. But there are three, you know, the Buddha organizes it in three ways. Renunciation, good-heartedness, or the absence of ill will, and non-harming, or non-cruelty. So, the same thing with these, uh, we can begin to see the value of renunciation or generosity as something that, from again, from a self-point of view, we hold on to a value so we can like check it out 
do we see generosity or renunciation? So renunciation would be something like being content with what we have as a protection that we actually use to protect ourselves. So like you have to walk through the Mall of America for some reason, you know, and it's, it's really nice to have that force of contentment with what I have. Or you're going to hang out with a friend who's very wealthy. And you might want to sort of use that protection like, yeah, I, I can appreciate what this person has, but I don't need it. I'm content with what I have. And it really protects us from the weight of greed, wanting something we don't have. And to understand um, goodwill, like we use this a lot with formal loving-kindness practice where we really take it out as a protection. That's what we turn to when we have a lot of ill will or we're in a situation that might trigger a lot of ill will. We pull it out and or we, in a sense, we pick it up and we put our attention on it to protect ourselves. The same with the value of not harming. You know, once we've cultivated that value, then when we're being irritated by bats in the attic or squirrels or my brother has a cedar house and he's got these pileated woodpeckers who put big holes in his cedar siding. Big holes. I mean, they're huge. (laughs) It's just their sort of way of establishing territory. And uh, he would really... (laughs) I mean, there's a law against it, which for him is important (laughs) because he would like to get rid of those woodpeckers. (laughs) So when we make a commitment not to harm, then it protects us because then when something really irritates us, it prevents us from immediately squashing that bug when it would be relatively easy for us to do that or saying something to somebody because of this commitment not to use words as weapons, then it it sort of prevents that. So part of, as we're going to, in the next several weeks, talk about right intention, on this mundane level, we're talking about uh, like armor. You know, really think of it in a very gross or really foundational way. We've got these values that are very protecting. And like any sort of protection, we have to learn how to use it. Like how do we use a value, the value of non-harming to protect us from doing something that would cause harm? How do we use renunciation or generosity as a protection? How can that take care of us in life? How can a commitment or uh, the value of goodwill or kindness protect us in life. Any thoughts about this before we move on to looking at these uh, intentions from a super mundane way, from a more refined right view point of view? Any thoughts about, and even examples of really using these values, these intentions, the really movements in the heart as a protection? Yeah. Freeman. 
Yeah. I think what Ajahn, that was a quote from Ajahn Sumedho, I think what he's talking about is that uh, it's very easy as we cultivate more mindfulness, more awareness, more sensitivity, it's very easy to get overwhelmed on a, on a mundane level that the world's a messy place, you know. And uh, we look internally and we see a lot of the conditioning we get from culture and from other sources maybe, and it looks problematic. And we start being sensitive to all the conditioning we see in those around us, and it looks petty and often mean, and even the so-called sweet qualities we see in ourselves and other people, we begin to read as just sort of um, being very uh, various means of sort of getting what people want, like feeling good about themselves because they're a nice person and they're being generous or whatever. And <clears throat> it's sort of a, a near enemy of practices moving into nihilistic view. And so I'm cultivating my practice because it's messy, I'm using my practice to remove myself. So when when Ajahn Sumedho says something like, I'll just reread that quote, when there is right understanding, we aspire to truth, beauty, and goodness. We want to we want at least, at the very least, keep an open mind. If we don't have any intuition, we want to at least have an open mind that where the practice is leading to is something that is experienced as being beautiful and good. Not just a way to manage what is a really messy and mean situation where we have a bunch of beasts you know, who are imprinted with a lot of greed and aversion uh, with limited resources, on a dying planet, <laughs> or you know, you can just add, add to it, you know, and like just trying to manage that situation to not make it any worse. It's very easy to fall into that trap. So what Ajahn Sumedho was saying, and I think it's really useful, because people misread the Buddhist teachings as being nihilistic or being materialistic. And they're not. The Buddha's talking about a, a release of the heart and uh, a freedom that resolves this uh, truth of meanness or resolves the sort of pettiness of the world. So, you know, in traditions, other traditions, we talk about what's sacred and beautiful and there's all, you know, kind of infinite amounts of, you know, human descriptions of what is divine. The Buddha didn't get into that too much on purpose because those are just more constructions of the human mind and they're really confusing. But just because the Buddha didn't get into it, didn't decided not to spend time articulating or say much about what freedom is or peace is, or that unshakable release of the heart is, it should be understood as something that is beautiful and good. And not just a, a way to manage the meanness of life. And so, that's why 
we have to, um, that's why he made the point, you know, to realize that when we have enough safety in life, when we're privileged enough that we have enough safety from sort of basic survival needs, social, even social needs, then the heart begins, can at least begin to intuit, be drawn to a more full release, more full happiness. Even before we understand what that might be or how how to realize that, there's some sense of what's possible. Right? We're inspired by that. Some of it, of course, is just like part of this get me out of here. And so we like a good story. So we, you know, we lose ourselves in religious or spiritual stories. But part of it is a real intuition from our own experience. It's interesting as children, you know, it'd be nice if we, you can do this in some of your small groups or just informally with your Dharma friends. But a lot of us have, as children, had experiences, um, you know, that people might call spiritual, of um, a kind of a profound sense of rightness or okayness or sacredness for no good reason. You know, it's, it wasn't like, uh, but it was there nonetheless. And some of us have those experiences now in life, in moments. Do you have a comment, Bob? Well, I think that's, I mean, there is that very direct, immediate release. So when I'm bound up with craving, and then that craving ceases, there's a release. And that release may be in some way related to that experience. But the point, the real point is, is that awakening experience resolves what the heart seeks to resolve. There's a very primal movement in the heart that wants to resolve the existential uneasiness. And that uneasiness is resolved. And what remains is no problem. And that's really hard from this point of view to talk about. Like, what this would be when that anxiety, that existential anxiety is resolved. Because one of the, one of the expressions of those moments is, and this is sort of really gets at where we're going, when we talk about a more refined view, right? So mundane view, again, is just a sense that it's lawful, that it behooves me to pay attention because I can make mistakes that will really hurt myself and others. And I care about hurting others because when they're hurting, it bothers me because I don't feel good about myself. Or So it all ties in to the self-view, the mundane place. Let me just see if there's anything else I wanted to say here about that before I move on. And then as we move to the more super mundane, actually I wanted to do a few more things, so 
I'll just finish your question and we'll get to the super mundane in a minute. And maybe that's enough, what I said. Is that, did you have a follow-up? Sure. Yeah. No, 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 I don't think it's too crude of a description. And I think that in a very pragmatic uh, situation gives the flavor of that freedom. Like, I don't have to be the perfect dad in order to be free, right? Because there is a way to be free, not bound up, even when I, on the level of being a dad, I make a mistake and I don't get back to my daughter on the day she wrote me or called me. Right? And, I mean, part of that freedom is recognizing, like, we can just reflect right now, you know, like, maybe this is okay. The life that we're living, the attitudes that we have, the mistakes we've made, the dullness of our minds, the indigestion we may or may not have, or whatever it is, maybe that's okay. Like, sensing that the world doesn't need to be different than it is can give you a flavor of that freedom. Because from a mundane point of view, the way the world is, is a problem that we personally have to solve. Whatever, however the mind conceives the world being the way that it is. The world is always a problem that we have to solve. Monday is a problem I have to solve, followed by Tuesday, which is a problem I have to solve. The body is a problem we have to solve. My job is a problem that I have to solve. My taxes are a problem that I have to solve. Every single relationship presents itself as a problem to manage. Isn't that true? Every thought that arises in my mind that I'm aware of is a problem. Like, how do I interpret this? How do I relate to this thought? Do I take it personally? Do I dismiss it? Do I give it attention or not? So every single arising from a mundane point of view is a problem to re- that there's, I have to have a personal relationship to it. I have to be personally skillful. You see what a burden being skillful is? An ever present, never free from that duty to be, to do our best to be skillful. So from a mund- now I'm talking about the best side of the mundane, where we're, we've got some sense, like it's important to try to be skillful. Still, it's a burden to have to be the one who has to be skillful, who's got to call his daughter back. Or, you know, when you do call her back a day later, have something funny to say to sort of release the tension, you know, so that it's all right immediately or quickly. Yeah, and that's actually, I think, right on point for what we're talking about because it is that freedom, not that what we did was skillful or unskillful, but there's an understanding that it was what it was, which uh, leads me to this quote, again by Ajahn Sumedho in that same booklet on the Four Noble Truths. The more we try to make conditions confirm to ideas, the more we we are frustrated the more frustrated we get. With reflection, we realize this is the way that it is. This is the way things have to be. They can only be this way. Now that now that is not a fatalistic or negative reflection. It is not the attitude of that's the way it is and there's nothing you can do about it. It's a very positive response of acceptance, 
of accepting the flow of life for what it is, even if that is not what we want. We can accept it and learn from it. Yeah, Anne. We could ask ourselves, are we sure that right now that joy isn't here? And you, you'll notice something like, well, no, I'm, but that's, you see how that's just a, a construction. Like we can, we can have all kinds of reasons why it's not here, but that's not really it not being here. That's just something else. It doesn't mean that the joy isn't here. It just means something's getting our attention. Like, you know, I haven't eaten in hours or my knees hurt or I don't know what he's talking about. But we have, you know, one of the reasons to keep going back there to joy is it really uh, starts to challenge wrong view. And this is actually a really nice segue because one of the thoughts I had uh, that would be useful now before we go to the super mundane view, the more refined right view, is to look not at bad view, but look at motivations that are quite common, being a little greedy, being a little irritated, being a little superficial or distracted or justifying denial, like I don't really want to deal with that now, I'm just going to pretend that that's not there and absorb into what I think is important, you know, the, the latest TV series that we're enthralled with or whatever it might be, that book or and then to get really curious about, well, what view does that activity, does that movement come out of? What does that view look like? What is its definition or its uh, interpretation of life, of this? Does that make sense? So think of a, a particular aspiration or intention or motivation that to you seems not so skillful, like, and then to see if you can trace back and get a flavor of the view that that intention or motivation might arise out of, if you can. Any thoughts? Yeah, Charlie. Yeah, that our goodness is a function of what other people, that it, I can't find it here, so it's got to be out there how people hold me or think of me. Yeah. And that when we say it out loud, like that's the view. Because a lot of the way we find, view is very subtle. The sort of underlying belief, structures of belief or understanding, it's subtle. But we can understand it by tracing back, like look at the actual movement of our mind and kind of getting then a sense of like, what sort of view would that movement flow out of? And then we can ask ourselves, does that make sense? Does that make sense? Like, is there something that is trustworthy or beautiful or good here? Any other examples? Yeah, Lila. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of, you know, uh, right intention, there's generosity or renunciation, there's non-harming or non-cruelty, and there's goodwill or goodness, goodness of heart. So you just need to 
you're the one who can answer that question. You know, like what, both getting a sense of what view did that action flow out of, but also what got set in motion with it. Like what is reverberating in your heart? And you know, a lot of times things are, are mixed. Like you might have felt personally threatened by that meanness in her, right? Or you might have felt superior. And so your words might have come out of that. Um, and, and a little, sometimes in those situations, not that we're necessarily even conscious of it, but a little power tripping like that righteousness and squashing something because we can. And that might have colored how the response was or the, the emphasis of the response. So, but the, the truth of it is what's left over. Do you know what I mean? It's like, that's how we actually know what it was. Because this is the continuation of that. So whatever is continuing from that, that's how we find out what that was. Because that is what leads to this. This, whatever that is that's left over, that's reverberating. Yeah, Patrice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been reflecting on this a lot as I think I understand what you're saying. And I think you're right to categorize it primarily under delusion because it's so easy <clears throat> to assume that what we're not seeing is not harmful. And it's it's really initially disturbing to the mind to realize how much we don't understand how how dangerous it is. Because all of a sudden, from a mundane point of view, as Patrice is talking about, we feel, all of a sudden we feel like, oh my God, I, I've got another thing I have to be responsible for, right? And white privilege is a really good example of that because the very, at least as I understand it in my own experience, the very expression of white privilege or class, like being relatively affluent or well-educated, healthy, the, the very expression of that is to be unaware of the privilege of it, you know. And, and basically an unconscious conclusion that it's okay to be unaware of it. That's sort of, that is the, and it's to, to begin to own that, to be conscious of it, it's like, it seems like, oh my God, why do I want to make a problem out of this? And you get a lot of this when you start talking about things around white privilege or other expressions of privilege. There's, a, there's always some of this that comes up. I definitely have felt it. I'm, I'm uh, too politically correct to ever say it out loud. But I have definitely felt that feeling like, oh my God, do I really, do I have to? And <clears throat> I think what what comes up the more I look at it is that uh, we have to we have to go enough into it to begin to see the liberating effects of being more honest about it, like that we are in this interdependent world and our privilege is uh, setting things in motion, whether we know it or not, that's weighing all of us down, myself included. And that we have incentives. So I'm not doing it because I should do it. 
but I'm doing it because it's liberating to do it. And that's the hard thing, you know, to articulate. I was, some of you know the Unraveling Privilege group that Patrice is part of, and it's been going on for a couple of years. And I've been really hoping that some of the people in the group will take the time to write for the community how that work of looking at the experience of privilege is liberating, like to kind of paint a picture of it as a liberating process so that we're all more inspired to do the work. Because I think it's really important that people who are in it and are beginning to feel the liberating effect of it do their best to articulate it. Because otherwise it becomes this sort of, you know, another sort of expression of delusion that, okay, because I'm a, a liberal, politically correct white person, white male of all things, straight white male, I'm going to do this work because that's what a liberal white male who wants to be seen in a particular way does, which is just more, forget about what it does for the world. For me, it's being more oppressed by my own ignorance and and it becomes insufferable to be for us to be living in those prisons that we create for ourselves around being right or being afraid of being seen as wrong or racist or ignorant in some ways. So I think it's a really great example of of this sort of mundane right view. And just hopefully in this kind of community, one of the things we can help support for each other is there's a lot we don't know. You know, just that sort of, it could should be a community mantra. There's a lot we don't know. So we should just assume that uh, we need each other, we need the difficult experiences in life, like having conversations about racial injustice or economic injustices to help us see what we're not seeing, to feel what we're not feeling, because we're you know, operating with unconscious ways of, of pretending it's okay, or it's supposed to be this way, or whatever else. Any other thoughts about this show, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is something I bet a lot of us see where, and it's it's almost like a a clue that we should always follow when something is irritating us. <laughs> what am I not seeing? <laughs> you know, what don't I want to see about my own stuff? It's really a t- almost guaranteed that something's interesting there to see. Any last thoughts? Yeah, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, th- so this is a great place to end because it it ties us into right view, which I thought I'd get to, but we'll get to it next week. Like, how does right view? What is? What do those motivational qualities look like? But I think the the thing, the question you're raising, Steve, is so important because. Remember that great line from Padmasambhava, the person who, one of the people who brought uh, Buddhism up into Tibet, and he said, although my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma 
mundane right view being expressed through intention into action is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So it isn't about getting this mundane stuff right. It's about being free, giving our whole heart to it, right? So it's like just going back to sort of privilege issues because that is as sticky as anything, like in terms of getting it right, these issues of economic and racial injustices, that's, you know, those problems aren't easily, because of the historic trauma and it it takes a lot of presence and time. So instead of thinking of, okay, I'm going to get it right, because I think that's the privileged point of view. It's like, I can figure this out. Just tell me what the right way to, and I'll be that guy, and then I don't have to feel guilty anymore. <laughs> and I can go back to being okay with the way the world is. So what it, what the mundane does, it keeps opening it up, and there's more and more and more responsibility. The more we see, the more responsibility there is. And you see how it provokes the need for freedom. More sensitivity means more responsibility, which means that really clarifies in the heart the desire, the wholesome desire to be free. And we want, we initially wrongly think that freedom comes from not being responsible. But when we realize it's just not going to happen, there's no way to be alive and not responsible, then we seek a different kind of freedom, like a freedom to immerse, to engage fully, fearlessly, and not needing to be saved. Like the sa- being saved is the full, fearless engagement. That's what freedom is. And it's you see how that's so related to no self. It's like, that's what's left. That's what non-harming and goodwill, from an absolute point of view, all that's left is the activity of letting go, renunciation, the activity of goodwill, and the activity of non-harming, right? Because it's nature without greed, anger, and delusion. It's the movement of nature without greed, anger, and delusion. So we can reflect on that this week, and we'll come back in our small groups, a little bit as a whole group, and then with our small groups next week, and talk about it. And it's just the opposite of the weight of trying to be good and respond appropriately to moments of that being effortless. Like the engagement, it's still complicated, we still don't know how to respond, like in Leela's situation, like what to say, but there's an effortlessness in saying what you say and reflecting on whether that was skillful or not, making amends if that's, or feeling, all of that is like a free flow of nature. It's not like you're necessarily more skillful at handling that situation, but there's less friction. It's just, the movement of nature and nature informing itself, learning from its own movement without any friction or weight. So we could share moments of how to be really responsible and care and sensitive in a world that's messy and doesn't seem to be made straight. In the yogic tradition, they have the sort of the equivalent of the curly tail of a dog or a pig. You straighten it and it gets curly again. You straighten it and it gets curly again. And like that's a simile for the messiness of life. It's not about straightening the tail. It's not going to get straight. It's about being free with the engagement and the messiness. So we need to leave it here.
Thanks, everyone, for your comments. So just take a few seconds, let the words go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.